When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As we discovered in episode 14, 39th Militia Battalion had faced the onslaught of the Japanese army at Kokoda. Despite a valiant defensive battle, they were forced to withdraw, delaying the Japanese at every opportunity. Now, they've fallen back to Isurava, the next strong defensive position. It's a tense wait to see who will join them there first, the 2nd 14th Battalion of the 2nd AIF, or the reinforced Japanese army. Talk about a nail-biting race against the clock. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome to 2022. Hope you all had a good break and we're all now back down to business. I realised that way back at the end of 2021, I said I'd be back in the first week of February. So I'm a week or so late. I do apologise, but it couldn't be helped. You see, there's this virus thing going around at the moment. Don't know if you've heard about it or not. The media's been very quiet about it. But anyway, I went and got me some of that coronavirus, and it fair put me out of action for a bit. But such is life. So, what's the go for 2022, you ask? Well, I remember promising big things at the start of 2021, with a new podcast specifically following the Australian involvement in World War I, taken directly from the official history, and something to do with Patreon. Well, none of that happened. Last year had a few lumps and bumps and didn't quite go as expected, but worked out well in the end. So the plan for 2022 is to make them happen this year. I'm in a much better position than I was this time last year, so fingers crossed. Anyway, let's get into it with the first episode of 2022. In the next couple of episodes, we're going to cover the period of the Kokoda campaign from the Battle of Isurava through to when the Japanese were forced to abandon their attempt to seize Port Moresby via overland assault. We're going to do it in two consecutive episodes for two reasons. One, it would make a bloody long episode if I crammed it all into one. And two, trying to keep track of all that's going on for that length of time will wear anybody out. But I want to keep it going so that the events around Isurava are still reasonably fresh in your minds when we cover the next phase. Now this is a confusing period of movement, with various groups going into action, being separated from the main group, and meeting up again at some place further down the track, sometimes weeks later. As you can imagine, without the use of visual aids, as this is an audio medium, it can be a bit tricky to keep track of where everyone is. I'll do my best to lay it all out, neat and tidy for you, but this is a series of battles which defy order, so we'll just have to see how it goes. There's a map on the Australian Military History Podcast website if you feel that might help you out. So where were we? Well, first up, I think I need to make a correction to the episode on the 39th Militia. In that episode, I said... That as the Japanese were approaching Isurava, the walking wounded of the 39th marched themselves back into the battle. While researching this episode, I found other accounts which say this event occurred during the battle. It goes to show how difficult it can be sometimes to reconcile different accounts. It's not surprising though, there was a lot happening all at once and some recollections that were collected after the war may have got timings and details mixed up. Either way, it did happen and that's the main point. So the Japanese forces of Major General Hori were significantly delayed by the 39th's fighting withdrawal from Kokoda to Isurava. This had an important impact on later events. 
The Japanese tactic was for fast-moving attacks, forcing their enemy back so quickly that they leave behind their supplies of food and ammunition. These abandoned supplies would sustain the Japanese army through the following fighting. The delay forced by the 39th started to make the question of supply a real issue in the Japanese commander's minds. The overland attack was only supposed to take two to three weeks. It had now been two weeks and they weren't even one third of the way to their objective. They needed to get moving and so they were heavily reinforced. Hori sent the main body of his reinforcement, who had just arrived by sea, on a 120km force march to Isirava. Due to the supply difficulties, the men were overloaded for such conditions and Japanese soldiers fell out along the way to Isirava. But even with these losses, the Japanese arriving near the village heavily outnumbered the defenders. As far as the 39th was concerned, well, there's only one way to describe their condition. They were buggered. They'd covered the monumental trek across the Arm Stanley Range to get to Kokoda. They'd fought two desperate battles and a fighting withdrawal. They were low on supplies, low on food, and a number of those still in the fighting line were carrying minor wounds. But still, they were determined to dig in and hold off the Japanese until the fresh troops of the 2nd AIF arrived, however long that may be. The position at Isirava was part of a V-shaped gorge, with the Eora Creek running north along the bottom of the valley. Isirava village was on the western side of the gorge along the main track towards Kokoda village. It was obvious this is where the main attack would come. However, on the eastern side of the gorge was a small track which could be used to outflank the main position. Brigadier Potts, commander of Maruba force comprising the 39th militia and the Papuan infantry, gambled on the AIF sending a force to that eastern side to prevent a flanking move and positioned his own forces to face the expected main attack. By the 25th of August, there was still no word of exactly when the Australian battalions coming to their relief would arrive. There were, however, signs that the Japanese were just about on them. The 26th would be the decider. On the morning of the 26th of August, Hori began the first stage of his plan to take Isurava. Having successfully dragged a mountain artillery piece into position, no mean feat in itself, he began a bombardment of the defensive position. Two probing patrols also went forward to try and determine the defensive layout. A forward patrol under Lieutenant Simonson came under attack from the probing patrol and succeeded in driving them back. Simonson then led his men in an attempt to find and destroy the mountain gun, but they were unable to locate it. Under the cover of the barrage, the Japanese troops moved forward through the jungle and settled into a garden on the northern edge of the Australian perimeter. The Australians were having none of that and charged at the Japanese, driving them out of the garden and back into the jungle. It was obvious, though, that these Japanese manoeuvres were only small efforts aimed at locating the Australian strongpoints. The main assault couldn't be far away, and only the battered, exhausted remnants of Maroubra force were there to hold them. The probing continued, until at last, like bronzed angels, the 1st of the 2nd 14th Battalion began to arrive. C Company of the 2nd 14th took over the positions of C Company 39th at the forward right section of the perimeter. The sight of the tall, fit and clean troops lifted the morale of the gaunt, ragged men of the 39th and with the promise of the rest of the 2nd 14th arriving throughout the night and the following day, the Australians, 39th and 2nd 14th together, settled in for a tough fight. The Japanese possessed mountain guns and mortars against the Australians' rifles and hand grenades and the Australians were outnumbered by at least 6 to 1. Overnight on the 26th and 27th, Lieutenant Simonson's forward post once again came under attack and several men were wounded, including Simonson. A platoon from D Company, 39th Battalion, came forward under Lieutenant Sword to reinforce Simonson 
and to allow the wounded to return to Isurava. By dawn on the 27th, Lieutenant Sword and his reinforced patrol had been cut off. We'll cover their ordeal a bit later on. Brigadier Potts had established his brigade headquarters at Alola, the first village back along the track from Isurava towards Port Moresby. He wasn't particularly concerned about how things were developing to his front. General MacArthur's headquarters, all the way back in Brisbane, had told him that his 1,100 troops were facing only about 4,000 Japanese. Outnumbered, yes, but they had the high ground, the dug-in defences, and the Japanese would have to expose themselves in order to attack these positions. He had no idea that Horry had in fact assembled just under 10,000 combat troops for the drive across New Guinea. The 2nd 16th Battalion was still making its way towards Alola from the airfields further south at Myola. The other battalion, the 2nd 27th, was being held at Port Moresby until the outcome of the Japanese landing at Milne Bay on the 25th to 26th of August was decided. Until the 2nd 16th arrived, Potts only had the 53rd Militia Battalion to prevent the Japanese from making a flanking move around the eastern flank. The 53rd didn't have officers with the forethought of the 39th, and so their training had been woefully inadequate. How they'd go against trained Japanese at this point was anyone's guess. There was another track to the west of Isurava, travelling through the little village of Naro. On orders from Potts, the 39th's new commanding officer, Ralph Honor, sent a platoon from C Company under Lieutenant Pentland to garrison Naro. Along the way, Pentland's platoon found the tracks swarming with Japanese troops, and so Pentland made the decision to try and make it back to Alola. The track behind him was cut, and so the platoon was forced to cut through the jungle. Potts and Honor's headquarters lost contact with Pentland's platoon. So that's how things stood early on the morning of the 27th of August. Sword's platoon was cut off, Pentland's platoon was similarly lost, the main body of the 39th was dug in, with the 2nd 14th arriving in the nick of time. The eastern, right-hand flank, was under the protection of the untried 53rd Militia, with the 2nd 16th making all haste to get to that flank. The western, left flank, was anyone's guess. Throughout the 27th, the Japanese main attack fell on the northern and western sections of the Australian perimeter, held by E and B companies respectively. Wave upon wave fell on E and B companies, and the Japanese decided that B Company's sector was their best bet. Careless of the losses they were sustaining, the Japanese hammered the position until late in the afternoon. Although there were plenty of Japanese to replace those lost, B Company had no such luxury. Their numbers were running very thin indeed, and it seemed that the next Japanese assault must break through. Again, just in the nick of time, the 2nd 14th rolled up, with their B Company to reinforce the 39th's B Company. You may have noticed that the 2nd 14th companies were moving into positions occupied by their 39th namesakes. This was probably just coincidence. I mean, they wouldn't throw in the fresh new company into the sector that wasn't getting hammered, would they? It turns out that the final expected Japanese attack for the day didn't eventuate. Maybe they'd seen the B Company position being reinforced and decided that was enough for one day. As night fell, the Japanese melted back into the jungle. Overnight, D Company of the 2nd 14th arrived and would relieve E Company of the 39th at first light. So finally, after two major battles at Kokoda and taking the brunt of the 1st Aid Isurava, the 39th were finally relieved of the burden of the main role in the defence of New Guinea. There were now three fresh companies of the AIF holding the main forward positions. Two 39th platoons, Sword and Pentland, were still unaccounted for, but the remainder of the 39th, or at least those still capable of standing, were sent to the eastern and southern sectors of the perimeter. Here, the steep slope and thick jungle prevented any large Japanese attack. 
Now, it's never wise to indulge too far into hypotheticals and what-ifs, but it's my podcast, and I'll hypothesise if I want to. I think this is a good point as any to have a look at the impact of what the 39th Militia Battalion achieved. At the time they first contacted the Japanese at Awala, they were the only body of troops standing between the Japanese and Port Moresby. Yes, the 53rd were there as well, but it was the 39th who had been given the task of holding the Japanese. Had they failed, what would have happened? As we've seen so far at Isurava, the AIF only just arrived there in the nick of time. If the 39th hadn't delayed the Japanese, then the AIF troops would have encountered a relatively fresh, supplied and confident force much further down the line towards Port Moresby. There were only a couple of strong defensive positions along the track from Moresby to Isurava, as we'll see later, so the opportunity to stage a defence would have been pretty scarce. And that's working on the theory that the AIF would have been embarking on the track at the time. More likely, they'd either have not arrived or would still be unloading on the docks at the time when the Japanese would have appeared. So what happens then? The Japanese take Port Moresby. With that, they have an airfield within easy striking distance of Australia or into the Coral Sea. Allied shipping in support of the Solomon Island campaign, such as Guadalcanal, may not have been secure enough to even contemplate the landing. Not only that, but they can start hopping across the islands of the Torres Strait, making it impossible for any Allied shipping to cross from one side of Australia to the other via the northern route. The possibilities are mind-boggling. Fortunately, we didn't find out what those consequences might have been because a bunch of chocos, in inverted commas, held the Japanese up for a precious few weeks. In the words of Richie Benno, marvellous effort, that. So, now back to the action. While the preparations for and the execution of the main attack was going on against Isurava, the Japanese on the eastern flank weren't idle. The flanking battalion began their manoeuvre on the 25th with an attempt to circle around Isurava using a minor track from Daniki to Alola. As mentioned before, only the 53rd militia battalion stood in their way. Many of the 53rd hadn't even fired a rifle prior to leaving Australia, and very little thought had been given to training and equipping them to face the Japanese. Around the village of Cayley, an advance patrol of the 53rd was ambushed by Japanese troops. The Australians attempted to retreat back to Alola, but the Japanese had already blocked the escape route and occupied the village of Misima. Their only option was to take to the jungle and try to make their way back to Alola. So now we have Sword, Pentland and the patrol of the 53rd cut off and heading into the jungle. On 26th of August, another patrol from the 53rd was sent out to find the missing first patrol. This second patrol found the Japanese troops at Misima and decided to withdraw back to Alola with the Japanese nipping at their heels. Towards nightfall of the 26th, a full company was finally sent down the eastern track to hold the Japanese attack. The following day, the 27th, while the 39th was fighting for its life at Isurava, Potts ordered the 53rd to retake Messina and secure that eastern flank. A second company of the 53rd was sent to reinforce the first, but it wasn't until close to nightfall that Lieutenant Colonel Ward was advised his two companies were to advance on Messina. Ward set out to follow his companies, but he and two companions were ambushed along the way and killed. The two companies advancing on Messina made contact with the Japanese forces and broke, scattering into the bush. Potts sent out the remainder of the 53rd to dig in and hold at Abuari, between Masima and Alola, until the forward elements of the 2nd 16th arrived. It was one of those lucky occurrences that sometimes happens in war, but the Japanese were unaware of just how close they were to achieving the goal. One more punch before darkness on the 27th, and they'd have swept the 53rd aside, and the way to Alola and Maroubra Force headquarters would be open. 
But, fortunately for the Australians, the Japanese called it a day and fell back. During the night, the 1st of the 2nd 16th troops began to arrive, and the situation was considerably more secure. Now this might sound like I'm bagging the 53rd. Their performance was obviously quite dismal. But, as I said in the episode on the 39th at Kokoda, it wasn't the troops who were at fault, it was the senior officers. No matter what the potential of the raw material is, unless the senior commanders provide adequate and relevant training, then of course the troops are going to crumble when they encounter troops that have been properly trained. The whole responsibility of the 53rd Battalion's fiasco lies with the senior officers. With the first rays of sunlight on the 28th of August, Horry pushed the go-hard button. His forces had brought forward numerous artillery pieces and they now opened up on the Australian position. Mortar and machine gun fire also raked the area, levelling the tall grass and sugarcane which had been providing a screen for the Australians. The elite South Seas Detachment then attacked the northern and western sector of the defence with waves of 100 men charging forward, screaming bonsai. In response, the Australians opened up with rifles and machine guns and hurled grenades down the slope, but the sheer weight of numbers pushed the attackers forward and were only repelled after fierce hand-to-hand fighting. Bayonets and rifle butts were used to great effect and each wave was beaten off. But the attacks kept on coming. Horry knew he substantially outnumbered the Australians, so his basic mathematical reasoning was that he could afford to lose heavily so long as the Australians were also taking losses. Brutal arithmetic, but true. By early afternoon, B Company, which had borne the brunt of the fighting, was severely knocked about but was still holding. All through the afternoon, the Japanese hit up and down the line, looking for a weakness. Every time they hit the line, they were pushed back by desperate fighting. But their luck couldn't hold out on them forever, and late in the afternoon, the attackers found a weak spot. Between B and D companies was a jungle thicket which seriously hampered visibility and communication. 16 platoon of D company occupied this thicket. When the Japanese probed in that area, they were able to get right up close to 16 platoon without being noticed and then charged, overwhelming the platoon. A breach had now been made in the perimeter. But again, luck was on the side of the Australians. Before the attackers could consolidate their gains and get word back to the main body, the headquarters company and A company of the 2nd 14th arrived and pushed the Japanese back and sealed the breach. The defenders now had sufficient numbers to enable them to man the entire perimeter, and also to maintain a reserve which could be sent to whichever section was being pressed the hardest. By nightfall of the 28th, Horry came to realise that he'd waited just a little bit too long to unleash his attack against the battered 39th. If he'd gone one or two days earlier, the battle for Isiarava would be over by now. But he'd been watching the position through his binoculars and realised the 39th had now been reinforced and his job was going to be much more difficult. By this stage, according to the plan which allowed 10 days to cross the Owen Stanleys, he should be closing in on Port Moresby. He'd just lost three days... 350 killed and a 1,000 wounded, and he was still sitting in front of Isirava. These kind of things weren't looked upon particularly favourably by the Japanese high command. Hori must have been feeling the pressure by now. He decided to bring up his reserve battalions and go all in on the following day. Now that the entirety of the 2nd 14th had arrived and were in position, it was time for the 39th to bid them adieu and head back to Port Moresby. They'd done enough more than could have been expected or hoped from them. But if you think they'd take that option, you obviously haven't been paying attention. Ralph Honor knew that the 2nd 14th was still heavily outnumbered and that the Japanese were going to throw everything at them the following day. He told Potts that his men would stay. Potts, knowing what they'd already done, declined, saying they'd done enough. Honor persisted and a grateful Potts agreed. The 39th would stay. 
Day 4, the 29th of August, kicked off with heavy mortar and artillery barrage. As they did the previous day, the Japanese infantry attacked in waves against the northern and western sectors of the perimeter. As fast as the Australians mowed them down, more fanatical Japanese troops took their place and surged forward. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for the Australians. A seemingly inexhaustible supply of men rushing at you. Eventually, the weight of numbers has to tell. At the same time, though, I also can't imagine what it must have been like for the Japanese. The zeal of fighting for the Emperor couldn't have taken too much off the edge of the fear of charging to certain death. It's just a terrible thing all around, really. During the morning, on C Company's front, on the northern right side of the perimeter, the Japanese threw themselves forward with such determination that C Company suffered heavy casualties and the prospect of a breakthrough seemed imminent. To plug the hole, a platoon from A Company went forward, but they too suffered heavily and the Japanese just kept on coming. The situation was now critical. Lieutenant Clements of C Company gathered a group of men for a counter-attack, including Sergeant Bob Thompson from Headquarters Company and Private Bruce Kingsbury from A Company. As he moved forward, Kingsbury picked up the Bren gun of his wounded mate, Lindsay Teddy Bear. A wave of Japanese soldiers appeared, and Kingsbury, firing the Bren gun from his hip, moved forward, calling on his comrades to follow him. With his best mate, Alan Avery, the rest of the group moved forward, but then they were pinned down. Lieutenant Colonel Phil Roden later said the fire was so heavy that the undergrowth was completely destroyed within five minutes. In Roden's words, quote, It was then that Kingsbury, firing from his hip, charged straight at the Japanese. He came forward with his Bren gun and he just mowed them down. He was an inspiration to everybody else around him. There were clumps of Japs here and there and he just mowed them down. End quote. Private Alan Avery went on to say, quote, his actions demoralised the Japanese, killing several and forcing others to find cover. The rest of the Australian group, inspired by Kingsbury's actions, forced the Japanese further back into the jungle. Kingsbury was then shot and mortally wounded by a Japanese sniper. The sniper fired one shot before disappearing. End quote. Avery, who had been only a couple of metres from Kingsbury, briefly chased after the sniper, but returned to carry Kingsbury to the regimental aid post, but his mate was dead by the time he arrived there. Private Bruce Kingsbury was awarded the Victoria Cross for his actions. Also, on the 29th, a reunion occurred. Remember Lieutenant Sword and Lieutenant Pentland, whose platoons had just been cut off? On the following days, they had crept, slipped, slid and otherwise made their way through the jungle, avoiding Japanese patrols while dragging or carrying their wounded. With very little food and water, no real medical supplies, they just kept going for as long as they could. On the 29th, the headquarters at Alola were treated with the sight of two bedraggled, bloody and starving platoons. Despite all the odds, they had made it back, but were in terrible condition. Notwithstanding, after a quick drink and a bite to eat, they turned and headed to Isirava to throw their weight alongside the rest of the 39th. I know I keep praising the 39th, but seriously, how could you not? Given the way that no matter how battered they are, they just keep on giving it everything. Anyway, while the main Japanese force was hurtling itself towards Isirava... The flanking attack was developing out to the east, with the plan of pushing on to Alola. A and B companies of the 2nd 16th were moving up towards Masima when they encountered a Japanese battalion. The two companies pressed hard but were unable to dislodge the Japanese and Captain Souble put the call out for assistance. The only help within Kui of them was a company of the 53rd. The plan was that on the following morning, the 30th of August, the 53rd lads would attack the Japanese position from the rear while Souble's boys took them front on but with nightfall closing in on the 29th, they'd all have to wait until tomorrow. Back at the main event at Isirava, as night fell, the situation was just about critical. 
The Australians had fought doggedly for four days and even the newly arrived 2nd 14th was being worn out. The Japanese had breached the vital ground held by B Company and could now set up machine guns with which to enfilade the entire Australian position. To shift them, Lieutenant Colonel Keyes would need to commit his reserve, but unfortunately his reserve was the 39th. They obviously weren't in any condition to launch an assault against entrenched machine gunners. It was obvious by now Isarava was untenable. Keyes had no choice but to request permission to withdraw to the Isarava rest house, about halfway between Isarava and Alola. Potts was no fool. He knew they'd done everything possible, but if the Australians were still in Isarava tomorrow, they'd be overrun and destroyed. Only an idiot stays where they know the knockout blow is going to land. He gave permission to pull back. It sounds easy, just pull back. But as you can imagine, breaking contact with the enemy while they're right in front of you is one of the most difficult military manoeuvres. Taking as much ammunition and supplies with you as possible, while destroying what you can't remove, is imperative if you're going to leave the enemy as little advantage as possible. Unfortunately, doing this pretty much tells the enemy that you're going. It would be nice to be able to say that the withdrawal went like clockwork, but it didn't. The majority of the 2nd, 14th and 39th did manage to get out, but many groups were cut off and had to make their own way back. Fortunately, most of them did, but some didn't. Lieutenant Colonel Keyes was one who didn't. As commander of the 2nd 14th, he knew his place was to stay until the end to ensure everyone was gotten away. He was captured while attempting his own escape. The Japanese interrogated him, then executed him. The only thing to cover, as far as the Battle of Isarava is concerned, is that attack out to the east which Captain Sublo had requested assistance with for the 30th. The sun rose, and as the hours ticked by, there was no sign that the 53rd had commenced their attack to the rear of the Japanese position. At 11am, Soublet felt he couldn't wait any longer and so ordered his men forward. The fighting was hard and desperate, with both sides taking heavy casualties. The Australians were once again unable to move the Japanese, but their attack did prevent Hori from being able to send his troops to effect the encirclement of the Australians at Isurava. More than likely, the outcome would have been the same even if the 53rd had shown up, but their absence was just another black mark in the sad history of that battalion. So that's basically the Battle of Isurava. Technically, it was a defeat for the Australians. They had previously held the ground, and now the Japanese owned it. The 39th was a spent force, the 2nd 14th was exhausted with many scattered in the jungle, the 2nd 16th was in slightly better nick, but they'd also taken their lumps, and the poor old 53rd never really got started. But the delay they inflicted on the Japanese put them even further behind schedule, had chewed up a massive amount of ammunition, and had killed a lot of Japanese soldiers. Hori had hoped to encircle and destroy the Australian force at Isurava, but they'd given him the slip. So, for the Japanese, it wasn't really a victory either. Hori must have known that there was still a long way to go before they'd reached Port Moresby. If they had to face that kind of defence at every major village along the way, it was going to be a close-run thing, and his army would be close to destroyed by the time they achieved it. But, Tokyo would accept no other result but victory said there was nothing for it but to push forward and hope to keep the defenders off balance and unable to mount another epic defence such as the fight at Isurava. From 25th of August to 31st of August, the Australians lost 99 killed and 111 wounded, while the Japanese lost 140 killed and 231 wounded. When you consider that as a generalisation, one killed for every three wounded is considered about normal, the dead to wounded ratio of both sides at Isurava gives a good indication of the ferocity of the fighting. So we'll leave part one there, I think. Tune in again in about three weeks, and we'll pick up the story and see what it took for the Australians to finally halt the Japanese. We'll see you then. Hope you've 
you enjoyed that episode? If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Music